Lord, what else do we say? You have been faithful our entire lives. And you have been so, so good. No matter what happens, whether we're blessed or not, whether we're in need or not, it doesn't change the fact that you are so, so good. And so Lord, open our eyes. Speak to us. Give us understanding by the power of the Holy Spirit of the scriptures this morning. Empower me to build up and encourage your church in the very body of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I hope that you are being encouraged this morning. I can tell you that I've, I learned an awful, awful lot in the preparation of this. I've never even really thought much about this, um, but I thought, okay, we've started at the beginning in Genesis. We've gone to Revelation, kind of how things are going to end, what the Bible says about that, and all the different views. Um, and we ended with how we're going to be judged last week, the, the judgment of the sheep and goats and whatnot, and, and everything, and how we're going to be judged by what we do, with our motives, and so on. We don't want to be a, a worthless worker, but we want that's worthy. We certainly don't want to be a wrecker of the church. But what happens after that judgment? Well, there's a varying views on it, but um, you go into the kingdom. Okay? So, I wanted to begin with talking about what I call a preview of coming attractions. Now, as you know... Um, I tend to like movies, although I don't go to the movie theater much anymore, partially because of price and partially because it's just not putting on anything worth that price to watch. But when I did go, I always like to be on time, okay? And if it's a, a noon showing, it's a noon showing. And, and I have a fantastic memory, but my mind goes dumb when it comes to this. So I get there and get, my, you know, maybe get some popcorn and drink, and I sit down, and I forget I have 25 minutes of previews. And by the time the previews are done, the popcorn is almost all gone. I'm thirsty, and I'm looking to get another drink or something like that. And then the movie actually starts. So I'm not a big fan of the previews that they put out there. Um, but we have a preview of coming attractions of what life will be like in the kingdom. Okay? And fortunately for us, We've been given a preview of this kingdom life in the person of Jesus Christ in his life and ministry while he was on earth. You can, I'm not going to put this verse up there. You can write this down for your own reference. But this is what it says about what life will be like in the kingdom. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So how does that tell us about what life is like in the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus filled the world with what? Truth. The knowledge of God. And he filled the world with health and well-being. And this is what the kingdom of God will be like. It will also be like this. Mark 6, 41-44. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up towards heaven... 
he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also the fish. There were five thousand men who ate their loaves. If the wives and children with them, it was close to twenty thousand people. Jesus brought an abundance of food. No one went hungry. This is what life is like in the kingdom of God. Mark 4, 39. And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Jesus overruled natural law. He calmed the weather. This is what kingdom of God will be like. A calm weather, a calm atmosphere. Now, there are more examples I could draw upon, but it's safe to say that Jesus did enough while his, he was on earth in a physical body to whet our appetites for a fuller experience of his coming kingdom. Now, when I say his kingdom, I'm referring to life in the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ described in the Old and New Testament. But the book of Revelation follows a chronological outline that fits what we call a premillennial perspective. In other words, there's the great tribulation, which most of the book of Revelation follows, followed by the second coming of Jesus Christ, then this thousand-year reign, and then you know, the, the eternal state, and so on. Now, there's a church age, followed by the great tribulation, the second coming of Jesus Christ, followed by the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ called the millennium, followed by the great white throne judgment and then the eternal state. Now, here's the thing. Because the revelation of Jesus Christ is, of course, what type of literature? It's apocalyptic, okay? It means it's difficult to interpret. And so not everyone obviously believes that there will be a literal thousand-year reign. But for this purpose of that this morning, and who knows? Who knows? But for the purpose of this sermon, let's assume that there is, Okay? Um, and there are good people that believe there will be good solid theologians that there will be a literal thousand-year reign. There are good solid theologians that don't believe there will be a thousand-year reign. But if there is, I want to paint a picture of what I think the scriptures tell you of what that life will be like. And you, hopefully you'll be encouraged by this, okay? What will it be like to live in the millennium? Now, fortunately, the Bible provides for us a wealth of verses on what the subject called his kingdom. In fact, there's too many to look at in a single sermon. Um, but probably the key verse describing the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ is found here. And so I want you to go to your Bibles to here, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. This follows the defeat of the enemies of God at Jesus Christ's glorious second coming. Okay? Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. 
Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's where we are in our timeline, if you want to call it, of what we've gone through in terms of how things are going to end, what the Bible says about it. But before I begin, I want to take a look back at what has transpired during the Great Tribulation, specifically, and this is really be the focus of this sermon this morning, what has happened to the planet or to the earth, okay? It's what I call a devastated planet. Now, since you are there, go back to Revelation chapter 6, okay, starting in verse 12. Go to Revelation chapter 6. It says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unique figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, perhaps, in the, in the, you saw in Revelation 20, for example, the difficulty in translating and interpreting these verses. There's not a literal dragon, right? But the dragon, in the text tells us, was a picture or a symbol of who? Satan, exactly. So what do we do with verses like this? I think that the best possible interpretation, again, it's possible, of these verses would be that it is an earthquake that is unequaled in human history, this great earthquake, and it has planet-altering consequences. It says, every mountain and island are moved out of their places. Now, what does that mean? Okay. So if you have, we can see Mount Rainier on most days, okay? And if it's moved out of its place, it's not like it's here, and it just get moves over here, okay? And islands don't just go from here, and then they're moved, you know, maybe a couple hundred miles over here. I don't think that that's what it means. Now, based upon the other verses that we'll look at this morning, I believe this verse is implying that many, not all, many of the mountains of our planet are going to be leveled to the ground. Okay? This is one reason why the men cry out that the tumbling rocks falling from the crumbling mountains fall on them. They don't want to be in the presence of God. These mountains are just you know, crumbling, and they want to rather die or be hidden from him in the earth than to face God. Okay? So this is probably a, a planet-altering earthquake. Now, Luke records what happens at the coming of not only a king, okay, but of the coming of the king, Jesus Christ. 
in speaking about uh, John the Baptist from Isaiah. Did I put this verse up here? No, I did not. Okay, just listen. You're familiar with this verse. It says Luke chapter 3, verses 4 and 6. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah. So again, Luke is recorded speaking about John the Baptist. And he's quoting from Isaiah. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. And of course that was referred to as who? John the Baptist. Okay, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So when a king or, or representative was specifically coming to a, another nation, they would literally make the, the, the road as, as smooth and as free of any debris, so it would be an easy traveling for the king, okay? Make sense? Think of it this way. The real king, the king, is now coming from heaven. And what's happening to the planet? Every ravine will be filled, so there's no more holes. Every mountain and hill is going to be brought low. The crooked ways will be made straight. The rough roads smooth. Okay? So the king is coming, and so there's going to be a, literally, kind of a leveling out of the planet in one sense. Now here's another verse that describes what happens to the earth at the coming of the king. And this is typical of how the Old Testament describes the impact of the presence of God. Psalm 97, verse uh, 4 and 5. His lightnings lit up the world, the earth saw and trembled. Now he talks about, if I remember correctly, when God was on uh, Mount Zion, it was the darkness and the clouds and the fire. I think it also mentioned lightning. But it says, the earth saw and trembled. Can the physical earth actually see? So what's it probably talking about? An earthquake, okay? Verse 5. The mountains, here's the key thing, melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. So if you had a, if you had a candle up here, it would melt it. What would happen to that candle? It would go all the way down. So again, and there are too many verses for me to, to, to go through to show you that this is how the Old Testament routinely describes the coming of the Lord. It's a flattening out of wherever he is. You may recall when Jesus comes again, if this is correct, his feet touch where at his second coming? The Mount of Olives. And what happens? It splits open, and, the, and all that, there's mountains there, and it's now flattened out, and the valley is created, and it becomes a valley of decision. We think the judgment of the sheep and goats occurs. Okay? Now, my point is that the earth is to be reshaped right before and during his coming. Many mountains and hills, not all of them, are eliminated. A flatter terrain is emerging. And as a result of this great earthquake, again, Luke writes in verses 21-25, Luke 21-25, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, so it's about his coming, we know that, and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves. Now the roaring of the sea and the waves is likely the result of what? A great earthquake. Remember I told you the story of when I was in uh, Devon Bar, California, I had those earthquakes. In the second earthquake, I was stupid enough to go stand by a glass door and look at the pool outside, and it was doing this, and that water was just going back and forth and so on. Now, if you think this through, as the earth is quaking, and this is a, the, the mother of all earthquakes. It is a, there's going to be a lot of earthquakes, but this is the great earthquake. 
what will probably happen is holes are going to open up on the ocean floor. That's going to cause water to recede and ocean levels to drop as waters fill the newly created underground reservoirs. The islands, again, they're going to be moved out of their places. They're probably going to disappear as they're displaced and completely submerged underwater. So not only are mountain ranges leveled, but islands disappear. But there is more that happens to the earth's water supply. You're in Revelation, right? Go to chapter 16, look at verses 3 and 4, verses 8 and verses 12. Again, this is all stuff that's happened right before his coming and at his coming. Because it makes it hard for us to understand, this is what we walk into. If there is a thousand-year reign, this is the earth we walk into. It's completely devastated, right? It says, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, it's Revelation 16, 3 and 4, and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. Now, it's easy to think that, well, we can symbolize this away, and it very well may be right, may be figurative. At the same time, we have an actual story that we believe to be true where this actually happened. When was that? Who did it? God did it through who? Moses. So it could actually be blood, okay? Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. So in Revelation 16, we're reading of these bowl judgments in which a portion of the salt and fresh waters of the earth, if they're full of blood, they're toxic, they're undrinkable. Every living thing in the sea dies. We also read of intense heat from the sun, that, folks, I think it will not only scorch men, as it says here, but that intense heat will undoubtedly quickly evaporate the earth's water supply. The dried-up Euphrates is fed by a series of water channels, as every river is, that includes the seas. It is most likely dried up as a result of what? A drought. There's a famine or a drought that's going on as well that scriptures talk about. It's also possible that since gravity is altered, because what else is happening right before or right at its coming? Stars are falling, right? There's obviously an altering of gravity, we think, okay? that water is carried up into the heavens. But I just want you to see that water levels around the planet are dropping as water is evaporated up into the air and receding into the newly created underground reservoirs as a result of the increase of earthquakes, but specifically this great earthquake. And all these verses are describing what is happening on earth right before his second coming, and they are most likely describing a reshaping of even the universe, okay? Including this planet right before his return. But there's something else happening that I wonder that I didn't learn until I prepared this, and maybe you haven't even considered it either. Because I want to take a closer look at what I just described the millennial earth will be like using verses from the Bible, but explain it from a, more of an a ecological or scientific perspective. And again, there is speculation going on here based upon verses. I could be way off. I could be on. I could be partially right or not. 
But we're taking these verses to give an idea of what you're going to see, I believe, life will be like in the, on the millennial earth. Okay? So let's talk about the millennial earth. And I could not find out who wrote this because uh, the speaker never cited it, but it provides with us a potential, again, a potential description of what the millennial earth will be like. I think this guy might be a scientist, but he writes this. <clears throat> Excuse me. The violent earthquakes and upheavals through the tribulation time will have leveled all the polluted cities of a sinful world. To facilitate the erection of new, clean, peaceful communities at the beginning of the millennium. These great land movements will also have eliminated the great mountain ranges and islands of the world, filling up the ocean depths and restoring gentle, globally habitable topography and geography all over the world. In other words, the rugged terrain that we know will be largely smoothed out and flattened as mountain ranges are reduced around the world. What about all the water of the earth? Well, the author goes on to write, As Isaiah the prophet has foretold, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall be made straight, the rough places plain. The prophets also say the islands will flee away. So the reversal of, of just the topography of the planet, uh, the upheavals of the flood, however, will not send waters over the continents again. In other words, God's not going to flood the globe. Well, why? Because he promised he would never do that again. But the worldwide drought at the first half of the tribulation, the cataclysmic splashdowns of bodies from the heavens, meaning the stars, during the trumpet judgments, and the intensified solar radiations of the bold judgments will all have contributed to the translation of vast quantities of water vapor far back into the skies. You know what the water cycle is, right? You know how it works? You have the waters of the earth, there's evaporation, and it goes up in the air, condensation clouds, rain, back in that cycle, okay? Now the question is, where, there's another place, though, where the water has gone to. It's not just back up in the sky and evaporated and so on. It says, quite probably, the author says, the immense tectonic movements, i.e. the great earthquake, and earthquakes and eruptions and landslides may also have trapped vast quantities of water beneath fresh sedimentary and volcanic deposits. Reinstating in partial the primeval pressurized reservoirs of the great deep, as the Bible calls it. What's the great deep? The fountain of the deep? How did God flood the planet? He released the water from the great deep. Remember this text says that? And it came up. So it's possible, this author is stating, and again, we're speculating here to some degree, that that's going to be refilled. Facilitating the, the birth of, of more artisan springs, including one which will feed the vast river that emerges from the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, described by both Ezekiel and Zechariah. Remember we went over that? That there was a river that, I think a little river that flows out of Jerusalem, and that whole area of what was mountains is now flat, and it was a desert, but now deserts, rows will rise. There'll be vegetation where it was just dryness. Then the seas of the millennial world will be relatively narrow and shallow once again. Now, do you remember how God watered the first earth? Do you guys remember that? From the what? The springs that were below, right? It was not through rain. There was no water cycle. The author says, in the original world, 
the only rains were gentle mist from localized daily evaporation and precipitation, according to Genesis 2.5, keeping the world everywhere at a comfortable temperatures and humidities and supporting an abundance of plant and animal life in all the regions of the globe. We don't believe that there were deserts or ice caps or uninhabitable mountain heights. Again, because the earth, when it was first created, was all good. The cataclysm of the great flood destroyed that beautiful world, but the global upheavals of the great tribulation will restore it at least in measure. I told you, when Moses, or Moses when Noah stepped off that ark, what did he step into? A, probably a completely different world than what he knew. So to sum up, according to this author, well, we'll quote him some more later on, the planet, after the great tribulation, um, it's going to be somewhat devastated. It's going to be less rugged, we believe, and more flat and smooth. The water levels will be reduced as they recede into newly created underground springs. And water is turned into vapor and carried into the skies. The oceans will be more shallow as earthquakes push up the ocean floors. What I am saying to you, and here's the point, if you haven't put two and two together by now, is that in the Great Tribulation, you ready for this? God is restoring the earth to its originally created condition. Why would I say that? Isn't that a lot of speculation, Pastor Chris? Well, yes and no. Everyone turn your Bibles to Romans 8, 19 to 22. I want you to look at what Paul says happens to creation at Jesus' second coming. It says, for the, verse 19 of chapter 8, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from the slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now, creation in these verses is personified as a person, and it's sighing for its glorious future. Well, what is its glorious future? What does the creation long for? What does the text say? It's in bondage and longs to be set free. Set free from what? The curse. The removal of the curse of sin. And of course, who cursed the ground? Because of the sin of man. God did, exactly. The whole creation suffers as it has been impacted by the fall of man. And in the future, the whole creation will have the curse removed. Now the question is, when? Well, obviously, it's simultaneous with another event. The revealing of the sons of God. Now what does that refer to? This is when we return in our glorified bodies at Jesus' second coming. In other words, when he comes again and we come with him, we are manifested, we are revealed for who we really are, what's going to happen to the planet? The curse will be lifted. 
Okay? Did you ever think about that? I didn't. And he's already, if, if I'm correct, reshaping the planet to be like it was in its original condition to some extent. Okay? So the great unveiling of the sons of God, it coincides with the restoring of the earth to its nearly original condition. So we talked about this in Sunday school. Paradise lost. That's what happened, right? There was a paradise, the Garden of Eden, all of that. Man sinned, and what happened? It was lost. Jesus came to restore paradise, in a sense. Paradise is now regained. So in a sense, Eden is being restored. The glorious manifestation of the children of God and the restoration of creation is what creation groans for, what it, long, what it longs for. I think this gives us a picture of potentially what the millennial earth will be like. Because do you remember what the first earth was like? It was flatter, less rugged. And it only became rugged after the flood. The earth was watered from underground springs. What did that result in? an abundance of lush green you know, food and, and, and life, okay? Because that's what the, the, the earth was meant to do. It was meant to produce. It can't do that now. It's frustrated. It's in futility. It's, it's restrained. It longs to have the, 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 the restraint, the bondage, to be set free to do what? What it was originally created to do, which was what? To produce in abundance, Okay? If this water has gone up in the air, it's possible that a water canopy could be restored. Remember that? Less water on the earth is now up in the air again. It's resulted in shallow oceans and seas. And we know that the water canopy, at least we think, sheltered humanity from the ultraviolet rays of the sun, and that's why people, we thought, lived to be as old as they did in that first society. Remember that? Now, this is what Isaiah describes life in the kingdom will be like. You recognize this verse? No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, which is our reality now, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought of a curse. If you don't live to at least be 100 years old, you're considering to be an infant in a sense. You're dying way too early. Okay? How is that possible? Well, I think it is in the millennial earth, if I'm right, that God is reshaping the planet so that when we step into that new millennial earth, where he is now with us, it's just like almost it was in the very beginning, where God was with man in that great lush environment that was more habitable for man than it is now. Now, Jesus produced in abundance, right? He did the miracle with the, the feeding of the fish and the bread and so on, right? Imagine an earth, a, a plant that is just producing. It's free. It, it, you, know, you plant your seeds and there's just an abundance of life and vegetables and fruits and everything. Imagine that. No more hunger. No more poverty. There'll be abundance. 
But there is more than, than a... In other words, what I'm saying to you is that the planet, the earth, is being renewed. It is being restored. But there is more that the renewed earth will have in common with the original earth. I think it's going to have a gentler climate. This author and scientist went on to write, the restoration of the water canopy should in large measure restore the globally pleasant warm climate of that part of the period of the earth again. No longer will there be great atmospheric movements that generate violent rainstorms or blizzards or hurricanes or tornadoes because the uniform temperatures of the global greenhouse will inhibit air mass movements of more than local extent. He goes on to speculate that there will probably even be in the millennial earth the elimination of wastelands and of deserts. He writes, the redistribution of Earth's topography and restoration of its vapor canopy will result in the elimination of many, if not all, of the wastelands of deserts. And the prophet said in Isaiah, and this is what he quotes, Isaiah 35.1 and Isaiah 51.3. Here's Isaiah 35.1. The wilderness... What's the wilderness, by the way, in the Bible? When we think of the wilderness, what do we think of? The woods, Right? But the also, the wilderness in the Bible is when they left Egypt, they went into the wilderness. It was also a desert, right? So the wilderness in the solitary place, Isaiah says, shall be glad for them, and the desert will rejoice in blossoms as the rose. Now, does a rose ever blossom in a desert? No, unless it has water. It says, for in the wilderness shall waters break out. Now, we have a picture of that, don't we? They were out of water. They were complaining. Moses, you brought us out here to die. So what did God have him do? Strike the rock and the water came up. Okay. So, in, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert, and the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. Isaiah 51.3, indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. In her wilderness, he will make like Eden. The deserts, the wilderness, will be like the Garden of Eden. And her deserts will be like the Garden of the Lord, which is the Garden of Eden. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the sound of a melody. And so the speculation then would be that the wastelands, the deserts, will be almost non-existent on the millennial earth. It'll be a place of abundance. A totally different planet than what we know, probably like what the first creation was like, the first earth. Now, the removal of the curse of sin from the earth, I think this is fascinating, will even bring healing to the land. This author goes on and says this, Somehow there will also come a great healing of the lands and the waters of the earth, healing from the terrible judgment of the tribulation. Before the great flood, the soils of that first planet, the first earth, were rich in all the needed nutrients, and the drinking waters all came pure and fresh from springs, fed from the deep underground reservoirs. But the destruction of these deep fountains and the devastating land erosion of the great flood... It largely destroyed God's uh, primeval terrestrial ecology, leaving the lands depleted, the waters polluted to some extent. Originally, all animals as well as man were able to derive nourishment from what? Before the flood. 
we were probably vegetarians. Remember that? We were able to get everything we need from plant foods, but under the, the far more rigorous conditions of the post-flood environment, God authorized man to do what? Eat animals. Animal flesh as well. Evidently, for the same reason, many animals also had to become carnivorous. Because what happened? Things had changed so much that the plants were able to give us the nutrients that we need. So these conditions were further aggravated during the long centuries after the flood, with the lands becoming further impoverished and the waters further contaminated, requiring increasingly great expenditures of, on fertilization and purification. How many of you have like water filters from the water you get from the city or from your own well? We need that, right? Why? Because the water simply isn't pure enough. So the decay of sin is taking its toll on the earth. But again, this gentleman infers that God uses the turmoil of the great tribulation to purify the earth, which would make sense. If he's going to purify the planet, why would he purify it? But it has to be purified because the Holy One is coming. Okay? He goes on to write, the traumatic upheavals of the tribulation period will have brought these conditions to a climax with devastating famine conditions and with terrestrial water so depleted and poisoned that all the animals of the sea had perished. Had such conditions been allowed to persist much longer, all life on earth would become impossible. But for the sake of who? The elect. It was ended. In some marvelous way, the author speculates, God will use the physical convulsions of the awful period of the Great Tribulation to purge and cleanse the land and the waters of the earth, as well as its moral and spiritual cleansing. Possibly the tectonic and volcanic upheavals, i.e. the earthquakes, perhaps even the atmospheric bombardments, that's the stars falling from the sky, will implant new supplies of needed nutrients and trace elements in the soils. Even the multitudes of dead animals and plants in the lands and the oceans, as well as the skeletons of the millions of dead men and the horses that fell during when? The great battle of Armageddon before he came. May well become fertilizing agents for the land as they remain scattered far and wide. Unprecedented global earthquakes and eruptions will trigger vast and violent landslides and showers of dirt and rocks, entrapping tremendous volumes of ocean waters beneath great overburdens of solid materials, which will rapidly become pressurized, lithified, and partially sealed. And the result is this, he says. It'll have two effects. In the first place, the sea bottoms will be raised to a higher elevation than at present, compensating for the great losses of water caused by the restoration of the water canopy and by the entrapment of vast amounts, volumes of water beneath the huge landslides, which produce the great reservoirs of fresh water. He speculates that the entire crust of the earth itself will to some extent have shifted, which would make sense because what's happened to all of the mountains and the islands, they've been moved, right? That that entire crust will slip over the earth's mantle, rearranging the various continental plates to a more nearly uniform distribution of land 
in sea surfaces or areas. Remember the picture I showed you of the, all the continents? They kind of fit together like a puzzle. There's one big massive, the Pangea, I think is what it was called. So secondly, this extensive rearrangement will facilitate the development of a new terrestrial system of springs and spring-fed waters. He goes on to quote Isaiah 41. Just listen to this. I will open rivers into high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I'll make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. So in other words, I'll open rivers into high places. What does that mean? Is there ever rivers in high places? Are there rivers up near the top of Mount Rainier? Apparently, that's going to be possible now. Fountains in the midst of the valleys, the wildernesses, the desert, the dry areas, will be pools of water, dry land, springs of water. So we're talking about a completely different planet, Earth, than what we currently know. And the thinking again is it's probably going back to the original creation. It's been freed, it can now produce, and God is, is preparing it for his people. If there's indeed an actual millennium, that will be the plan that we enter into. That's his kingdom. Now somehow God is even going to repopulate the oceans because we know that the second bold judgment resulted in the death of every living soul in the sea. So those fishes who required a marine environment, they were destroyed. But there's a great millennial river in Jerusalem, described in Ezekiel 47. And listen to this, verses 8 and 9. I shared this with you, but I don't expect you to remember it, but it's, it's fascinating. Then he said to me, These waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. They go towards the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. The waters of the Pacific Ocean, are they fresh or salt water? Apparently, this fresh water is going to make those seawater not salty but fresh. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. There will be very many fish, for these waters go there and others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. So in other words, this water is going to bring what? Life. The fish that were apparently destroyed are brought back somehow. So somehow God's going to do all of this, bring them back into the waters, into the sea. He's going to maybe adjust them so they can live in whatever the climate of that new water is. Now, again, I remind you as I close with this, is this all absolutely true or is this a little speculation? Clearly, what I'm saying to you, you hold very loosely, but based upon these verses, and what I think there's a, you can make an, at least an argument, that this is what it could be like if there is indeed a millennium and what the life would be like on that planet. Eden, in, to a sense, would be restored. Okay? So it may not be too far off. Now, is this something that I would argue to my death? Absolutely not. Is it something I think that we might want to know to encourage us? Sure, absolutely. So the millennial earth... The creation freed from the bondage of the curse of sin. And by the way, if we're right, humanity is now no longer under the reign of who? Satan, because he's been bound. But that, that creation is now renewed. It's restored. And it's going to be a world of blessedness 
beyond anything we could ever imagine. And that's just from a, an ecological or from a, a Earth's perspective. We'll get into next week what it will the, you know, what it look like for us to reign with Him. <laughs> to live in a world where there is always peace and justice and righteousness. I, I don't understand. I, I can only imagine that. But I certainly long for it, don't you? Amen. So I want you to do this. I want you to simply just meditate on what his kingdom will be like. Think about this week. Be encouraged. Because that is our inheritance, right? Prepare, you know, I've prepared a kingdom for you. Enter into my kingdom. And it's been prepared for you since when? The foundation of the world. Let's pray. We were just saying a song that talked about you are so, so good. And to think that this is, it might be possible that this is what awaits us if there is indeed a, a literal thousand year reign. That we haven't inherited a devastated planet. That you're going to reshape it, renew it, free it from its curse. It will produce for us in such a way that it's just beyond anything we could even ever ask or imagine. That is the hope that we have. That's what your son earned for us. And so we can only praise you. We can only thank you. And we can only look forward to that which awaits us. So keep these thoughts in the forefront of our minds this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you're encouraged. Have a great, actually, Thanksgiving, right? Yes. God bless you. And again, you can drop off pies and cinnamon rolls at my house if you need my address. I'll give it to you. All right? God bless you.